Amen. Please be seated. Now, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis. We'll look at some, uh, actually, various verses from Genesis 1 and 2, and they're all printed there in the bulletin for you on the next page for your convenience. Um, This morning, as we're uh, going through our series on Genesis 1 through 3, we're considering... um, the way things were in the beginning, the, the ultimate destiny, the trajectory, the goal for all things from the beginning, and uh, something that we've, uh, we've talked about and uh, will talk about again is um, how uh, certain things that are a, a part of our common experience now, a part of our regular life now, that are very hard, certain things for us that we... Uh, we don't think about rightly, or we don't engage in rightly. Uh, those certain things are not part of the world uh, that's broken. They're, they're the way the world was supposed to be. And one of those things is work. Right? Work, uh, we were made for work. Work is good. Work was instituted before the fall into sin, before human rebellion broke the world. Work is, um, is part of the way that things are supposed to be. And, but w- the way that we see it now is distorted by our rebellion, uh, by the, the fallen nature of the whole world, uh, ourselves included. And so um, the Bible, it's, it's very important that the Bible gives us this picture up front in Genesis 1 and 2 of the way that the world was, the way that the world uh, was supposed to be, right? It's very important for us to know that that is different from the way that we see things now and why that is, and how we can be restored to that um, original purpose in creation. And so uh, this morning we're going to talk about work. Uh, Our relationship to work, uh, um, the way that we engage in work, the the way that we consider it, is uh, is usually a difficult thing for us. Maybe almost always a difficult thing for us. Either either we engage in work um, and we try to find our identity in it. We try to build our identity or find our righteousness uh, feel okay because of who we are and what we do in our work, um, and, and in that case, turn turn work into an idol. Yeah, right? That's kind of one thing that we do with it. Or um, sometimes we're just going through the motions. Right? Just gotta gotta get up, gotta get to that job. We're going to the motions. We don't find any particular significance in our work, um, and maybe we despair of ever finding any significance in. Uh, a huge part of our lives. It takes up most of our waking hours work, usually, right? And we despair of finding any significance. You know, we're just going through the motions. Um, or maybe work is something that we sort of reluctantly tolerate and um, we kind of set up in our life in order to get what we really want out of life, recreation, right? That weekend, living for the weekend. Um, work is just kind of a means to an end in that sense. Uh, we tolerate it reluctantly but we'll tolerate it. Or um, maybe for a majority of the world, work is something that we're forced to do just to stay alive another couple days, really. It's, it's reduced to that level of toil and difficulty. We just got to do it or else you're going to die. You won't be able to provide for yourself or for your family. Um, and those are all, that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And that's not what work was meant to be and how we're supposed to engage in our work. The Bible gives us a glorious vision for our work for what we're supposed to do with the raw materials that are around us, the raw materials of creation and this world. Right? It gives us a glorious vision for that. Um, uh, God left room in his creation for us to improve things. 
when, when God made the world, it wasn't as good as it could be. It was good. Everything was good. Everything was fine. Nothing was wrong with it. But it wasn't as good as it could be. And he put us here, he made us in his image to make improvements, uh, to, to cause to flourish, to bring to order, to bring beauty, and, um, and to, to turn this place into a beautiful temple, something like uh, what you see in, um, in the Old Testament where God gives skills and gifts to particular people to be able to contribute things to his temple to make it a beautiful place, this temple, where he will meet with his people. And that's what this whole world is. That's what we've talked about uh, over the course of the last several weeks, that God made this world to be a temple, a meeting place, where he will meet with his people forever in, uh, in perfect communion. And uh, when he created it and he put us here, he, he made us uh, able and he called us to adorn the temple, right? To make it more beautiful, to make everything flourish and work even better than, uh, than when he had made it uh, to be good and very good. Uh, to bring about greater goodness, right? And that's what he has called us to do, and that's what, I mean, Christians in particular have a way of talking about work that's, um, we, we call it our vocation, our calling. It's not just something you've got to do to stay alive. It's something God wants us to do. Work is part of uh, the way that things are supposed to be, and there's a way for us to engage uh, in our work in a better way than, than we usually do. So we're going to talk about how to do that, how to engage in God's vision for our work this morning. So uh, let me pray. And then we'll read from Genesis. Father, this is a, a huge subject for us to consider since every single one of us is called to engage in your creation and in society um, for the betterment of, uh, of society and to improve upon even your, your own creation to... Um, bring it to a place of greater order and beauty and goodness through our daily lives, through the way that we spend most of our waking moments. And we pray that you would help us because we desperately need your help to view our lives uh, differently, to view our vocations, our callings, our work in light of who you are and in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and in light of your ultimate purpose for the creation of this whole world. We pray that you would help us now as we consider your word Grant us your spirit's help, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 26. God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So... God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then down in chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Then in verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, um, a bit of a joke here. Uh, one day, the scientific community felt that it had made tremendous progress, tremendous advancements, technologically, scientifically, understanding of the world, ability to manipulate the world, scientific community felt, you know what, we've made such advancements that uh, we no longer have any need for God. And so the scientific community sent its chief and greatest scientist to a meeting with God to inform God of their decision. And so the scientist arrives and he says, God, thank you, but we don't need you anymore. Uh, we, we understand the world well enough. We can provide for all of our needs. We can make great advancements. We can even create life in the laboratory. We can even clone human beings. So we don't need you anymore. And God says, really? Well, okay, I'll leave you alone if you can prove you don't need me. Let's have a demonstration. You create a human being and I'll go. You create a human being and I'll go, but let's make this realistic. After all, I made humanity out of the dust of the ground. So uh, you must create a human being not by cloning other humans, but out of the inanimate dust, out of soil, out of dirt. Can you do that? If you can do that, I'll go. And the scientists thought about it long and hard and uh, made the necessary calculations, considered the available technology, and he came to his conclusion, yeah, you know what? We'll take you up on that. I think we can do it. We can make a human out of dirt. And so God says, go ahead then. So the scientist gathers up his notes, he gets his instruments ready, his lab uh, all outfitted, and he goes outside to get the dirt that he needs for his project, and God says, get your own dirt. <laughs> get your own dirt, right? Um, we've looked over the last several weeks at the song of creation, right? The song of creation, the artful account in Genesis 1 of the beginning of the world that God made. God made it all from nothing, right? We're not given explicit details about all the creative processes that resulted in the material reality that we can observe scientifically. We're not given scientific details 
about matter and, and how it came into being, where there was no matter before and now there's matter, what that process looked like, uh, what the world, how, how it was uh, fashioned in, in ways that we can I identify and observe scientifically, but there does seem to be implicit, implicit in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, it's maybe even explicit, this, this concept of process, of improvement. It's that first God made just stuff, and then creation, the song of creation is about him making good stuff out of that stuff, right? Um, separating light from darkness, separating stuff that he'd already made, right? But now he's shaping it, separating light from darkness, gathering, uh, separating the waters in the heavens from the waters below, gathering the dry lands into one place. He's working with the stuff that he had made already. It's pre-existing, not eternally existing because he made it in the first place, right? He made things like dirt out of nothing, but he's gathering the dirt and he makes them to appear in a, in a continent and then, um, and then populating these created realms with created uh, rulers of these realms, right? The birds for the sky and the the fish for the seas, and the beasts and, and humanity for the, the earth, right? So um, he, there's this concept there that's at least implicit, that God's creation involves his work, his creative work involves forming what's, what's chaotic, what's empty, what's meaningless, what's uh, just sitting there dead and lifeless, forming it into beautiful, good, living things, right? This, this kind of a process is at least implied. And now, <clears throat> as we zoom in, on the creation of humanity, which you see, uh, it, it's, it's zooming in on that in chapter 2. It's not like a second account of creation. It's not going back as a competing account to what happened in Genesis 1. It's, it's really taking what happened in Genesis 1 and kind of uh, zooming in on <clears throat> humanity in particular. We see that God is working with stuff that he's already made. He's working with dirt, right? Just inanimate soil, the dust of the earth. He's working with that, which we rightly assume that he had already made that out of nothing, <clears throat> and he's arranging it and fashioning it and sculpting it, and he's, uh, he's crafting now the chief of all of his creatures out of this inanimate material, right, out of the dirt. It says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. <clears throat> so the language that's used here, uh, Derek Kidner says, uh, he's got a commentary on the book of Genesis, great little commentary, it says, when it says the Lord God formed the man. Formed, Kidner says, expresses the relation of craftsman to material with implications of both skill and sovereignty. While breathed, it says he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. <clears throat> breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. Right? So it's a very intimate, beautiful, artistic picture that we get here in these verses about God creating humanity out of dirt. Right? It's, uh, it's beautiful, it's artistic, it's, it's intimate. The creation of humanity from dust, from surrounding raw materials is a loving work of art. It's a loving work of art for God and it's the crowning achievement of all of his creative art. He's a God who works. That's what we take away from this. He is a God who works. He takes stuff and puts it together. He 
likes things like Legos, right? Kids, uh, he takes stuff and he puts it together and he shapes it lovingly and carefully. And, he, he, um, and his work consists of that shaping and sculpting and bringing about greater beauty, greater goodness, greater order than uh, what he had made originally, right? Just the, the matter, the material stuff. He's making it better. And he has made humanity in his image, in his likeness, and this means a lot of things, which we've talked about over the weeks and we will again in the coming weeks. Being created in his image means a lot of things, but one of the most significant is that humanity in action will look like God in action. Right? Humanity at work will look like God at work. Humanity in relationship to the rest of creation will look like God in relationship to the rest of creation. And, um, and here in our passage, we get a wonderful picture. God is a gardener. He's got his fingers, so to say, in the dirt. He's a gardener, and so humanity will be a race of gardeners, literally and metaphorically. God is a gardener, and so humanity will be a race of gardeners. In, uh, it says in the east there, uh, where, where he's made Eden, he plants this garden, and he describes where it is, this location. So Eden was a real place. Right? This is not just symbolic language. It was a real place. It's not there anymore, right? Uh, it was, but it was a real place, and that's the, the details here call attention to the reality of this. Eden was a real place in which God planted a garden. He created the whole universe. He created the whole world to be his temple, to be this wonderful, beautiful, glorious place where he'd meet with people. But he, uh, but he started in one little spot of the world, one little corner of the world, right, with this garden, planting a garden and cultivating it and shaping it to make it flourish, right, to bring this to its ultimate purpose, to its ultimate goal, this garden, the meeting place for God and, and humanity. And it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So he he planted this garden full of trees that are beautiful and pleasant and good to eat. And he took Adam and he plunked him right there and said, maintain this and develop it and expand. Adam was set in this beautiful, uniquely cultivated place. There's no other place like this in the history of the world where God himself directly brought reality to its ultimate goal, right? This garden, this, this place where uh, it would be a meeting place for him with people. It's a unique place. It's a cultivated cu- place cultivated by God. And Adam was set there to do the same kind of work that God himself had done. The very same kind of work <clears throat> to take the stewardship that God had given him over all creation and to work his way out from the center to make the whole world like a garden temple. Right? A garden temple, to make the whole world that, to start here and go. And, it, and we get those uh, clues are given to us earlier in the chapter, or actually in chapter 1, verse 28, where God's commandment, this cultural mandate as it's, as it's called, is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then he had formed every beast and brought them to the man and saw what he would call them. And everything, you know, that he named those things, that, that was their names, right? So he's, he's given uh, humanity this kind of dominion, this kind of stewardship 
this kind of unique relationship to the world to bring it to a place to do the same kind of work God has done to bring it to a place of, uh, of perfection and goodness and beauty to cultivate the world. And so we see uh, the incredible humility in this passage of humanity. Absolute humility. I mean, we're made from the same stuff as the rest of the creatures. There's a sense in which we are, we are just like the rest of the world in which we live. We're made out of the same stuff, right? The same matter. It's dirt. You see that clearly in the passage. We're, we're humble creatures, and yet you also see the incredible privilege, wonderful privilege, unbelievable privilege. God is letting us name the stuff that he made. He made it. Usually when you make something, you have complete ownership of it, and you're not giving it up to others uh, to decide what those things will be called and how people will use these things. But he's, he's giving over, uh, he's delegating. He's giving stewardship to an amazing, incredible, unique degree to humanity. And John Walton says that um, the people are delegated a godlike role. It's an incredible privilege. Right? We are certainly not gods. We are made by God from the dirt, the same stuff that it says he made all the beasts of the field out of, right? We're made from the same simple, humble matter. We are not gods, but it is granted to us to relate to the rest of creation in God's own place, in a sense, as God's representatives, right? We are delegated a godlike role in our relationship to the rest of creation. And it's fascinating, I think, um, that you see this unique relationship to creation, you see this, I mean, it's clear as day in humanity. You see it expressed even from the, the very earliest age. I mean, what other species on the planet has babies who before they can even move around on their own, before they can walk or take care of themselves or feed themselves, they learn the names of other animals and the sounds that they make? Right? What, there's nothing that even comes close to that in the rest of the creaturely realm, in the rest of the world, right? It's a unique relationship that we exist in with, with the world, just a little baby, absolutely dependent on the loving care of others to provide for it, to be able to live, yet already demonstrates vast superiority, a unique relationship to the rest of the creatures. And the relationship that we're supposed to enjoy with the world that God has made, uh, he's, he's made us from it, and he's placed us in it, and the relationship that we're supposed to enjoy is to be characterized by the same kind of creative work that God himself has done. God is a gardener, and so we will be gardeners. Um, again, to refer to that uh, ancient cosmogony, that ancient competing worldview about like, who the gods are, what their will is, why, uh, why they created humanity, what this world is made from, how it came to be, you know, and most of those things are uh, accounts of kind of divine warfare, battles, and, um, you know, the world springing forth out of the carcass of a dead god, and violence, you know, this picture of just violent, chaotic creation. That's, that's the way most um, ancient uh, worldviews taught that, you know, this was how the world came about, and this is who we are, and how, what we were made for, right? And so that Enuma Elish, which we've referred to, I think it was uh, Akkadian, you know, they've got uh, the battle of the gods. They've got Marduk, who's the king of the victorious army of the gods. And, um, and the gods, you know, when they created this world out of the carcass of one of the fallen gods, they've created this world 
but they don't want the responsibility. They don't want the labor. They don't want to have to do the hard manual work. They don't want to have to get their hands dirty. They don't want to work. So what are we going to do? We're going to create humanity to do it for us, a slave race, right? So Marduk says, savage man I will create. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease to bring food offerings for the gods and goddesses. He creates these lowly creatures called humans to do the work that the gods are unwilling to do. Um, and in contrast, in the Genesis account, the Lord God, and this is where you really start to see several times repeated, the Lord God, and this, as you see the, the all caps Lord there, it's translating the proper name of God, Yahweh. It's translating this specific God's actual personal covenantal name. You know, this is one God, he's the true God, he is not like other gods, we're making that distinction here. This Lord God in contrast with all these others, he works. He himself works to create. He creates works of art and beauty and goodness. And he calls humans to join him in that same kind of work. God did his work with dirt. Got his fingers in the dirt, so to say. Um, and we're supposed to work with dirt. This is, again, an, another reaffirmation that dirt is actually good. The physical stuff God has made is actually good. God has, has made it and he's declared it to be good and he's worked in it to cultivate it and develop and we're called to do the same thing. So, so work is not a result of the fall. Work in itself is not a feature of um, the world being broken. Right? Work was not intended to be slavery for us. It feels like slavery to a lot of us, and it actually is slavery for a lot of us. It was not made to be that. Work is good, and we were made for it, not as one makes slaves, but as one makes co-workers, right? Um, and Eden, this, this real place that existed once, this real beautiful place where God planted a garden himself, and he put humanity in it to cultivate it and to expand it, Eden, the word means delightful. It means pleasant. I think one of the uh, ancient translations uh, is where we get the word paradise from. Uh, Eden is paradise. It's beautiful. It's pleasant. It's wonderful. Derek Kidner again says, It's a place expressly prepared for our delight and discipline. Like we're to discipline this place and make it better. It's, it's made for our delight and for our discipline. And so work, as it was originally intended, and, and ways in which we can still engage in it according to God's vision for us, it's multifaceted. Right? There's as many different ways to think about work, good ways to think about work, good ways to do our work. There's as many different ways to do that as there are actual jobs to do, probably more, right? So <clears throat> work is multi multifaceted. It's Something that we're called to do is uh, exploration, discovery, right? Investigation. Uh, here's these animals that God is parading by, and Adam is encountering these. At the, the first time, he's naming these things, probably not giving them all the unpronounceable Latin names that we give to animals, but we do that, right? We name everything that we find. Um, so there's this concept of exploration and discovery, and, and wrapped up in that is this, the concept of Learning, right? learning, 
studying, researching, education. I mean, this is all stuff that we're called to do that fits under this huge umbrella of vocation or work. Um, and so, <clears throat> so students, if you're in school, you're learning. That's your work. That's your calling. Right? Students, uh, researchers, biologists, explorers, astronomers, paleontologists, right? Um, this is, this is part of what God has called us to do. Uh, there's a great book, really, really tremendous book, called A Meaningful World by two guys, uh, Wicker and Wit. And in this book they say that the truth about human nature is that humans take immense joy in knowing for its own sake. They're the only ones who do that. Right? In knowing, in being able to explore things that don't just have to do with... Uh, evolutionary purposes, right? Don't have to do only with survival. We don't, survival of the fittest does not depend on our theoretical physics, right? Or advanced mathematics, uh, exploring the universe, right? Survival of the fittest does not immediately depend on these things. You can't explain our hunger and our thirst for knowledge and our joy in just knowing, for the sake of knowing. You can't explain that through simply biological processes, the processes of evolution or whatever. But they say the truth about human nature is that humans take immense joy in knowing for its own sake. Earth is the paragon of laboratories for the paragon of animals. This place was made for us to explore, to discover, to investigate, to learn, right? To grow in our knowledge for its own sake, for the joy of it, right? To learn for its own sake. This place was made for that. And during the last several decades, they, they continue, evidence has been accumulating that the universe is finely tuned not only for our existence but also to allow us to discover the genius of the universe including the discovery that the universe is seemingly desi designed for discovery this universe was made as a place for us to explore like a playground when kids go out to a playground wow what's that over there that's awesome let's let's do this over here right that's what this whole universe is made for our delight, right? So uh, learning and exploring and discovery, th these are all components, chief components of our um, relationship to creation as we're called to, to engage in it as God's uh, chief creatures. Peter Kreeft says human science is an appreciation of divine art. Human science is an appreciation of divine art. We look, we look for patterns, in everything around us, and we find patterns in everything around us. We look for patterns, we look for beauty, we look for clarity, we look for elegance, and these things are everywhere, right? These things are everywhere. And so um, human science, then, and human exploration is, is an appreciation of divine art that we see in creation. Cultivating is another facet of our work that we're called to do, right? The, the vocation that we have as humans made in God's image, cultivating, bringing form and order where there is none, taking something that's lifeless and dead and shaping it and causing it to produce life. Right? Farming is a great example of that. Gardening is absolutely an example of this. Reorganizing the, the raw material uh, components of nature around us, developing things toward usefulness, digging 
stuff out of the ground and turning it into tools. Right? Uh, developing things toward usefulness. So, I mean, engineers, right, they do this. Gardeners do this. A lot of you uh, are both of those, <laughs> engineers and gardeners. Um, social workers do this, right, with the fabric of society, trying to improve on it here and there, trying to make life better for people here and there, but organizing people, right, bringing order and organization and cultivating society to bring about flourishing. Moms do this, stay-at-home moms. That's, that's a, an amazing vocation where they're taking people and they're shaping them, right? Taking, taking in a sense, the raw materials of God's creation here, this, this little baby, and, uh, and shaping them and preparing them to make the world a better place. Um, custodians. I mean, the list goes on, the ways that we uh, reorganize and uh, bring order to the world around us. Shepherding other living creatures, it's a big one you see in our text, right? Working at a zoo, <laughs> taking care of pets, uh, working on a farm, all these things um, qualify as the vocation, the, 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 the thing God wants us to do. He made us for this, to take joy in these things and to do these things well. Creativity, art, architecture, um, developing shared appreciation of beautiful things. Creating beautiful things and then studying beautiful things and writing history books about beautiful things and getting people excited about beautiful things. Right? That's, that's vocation. That's calling. That's what we're supposed to do. And so um, I mean, it, the list goes on. We can't explore all the possibilities here. But um, Jack Collins says, mankind's original task was to begin from Eden work their way outward and spread the blessings of Eden to all the earth. This would mean managing all of its creatures and resources for good purposes, to allow their beauty to flourish, to use them wisely and kindly, and to promote well-being for all. Peter Lightheart calls attention to this. This is, this is life flowing from the sanctuary place where God meets with his people, the place where th things are the way that they're supposed to be, and we're living in right relationship with God and right, right relationship with the rest of his creation that we've been placed in the middle of, life, that's a sanctuary, and life flows out from that sanctuary. Um, and Tim Keller has a good book. Um, I haven't read it. seen a lot of quotes from it. Every Good Endeavor. It's talking about uh, work and vocation. He says that we are continuing God's work of forming, filling, subduing. Whenever we bring order out of chaos, whenever we draw out creative potential, whenever we elaborate and unfold creation beyond where it was when we found it, we are following God's pattern of creative cultural development. The material creation was made by God to be developed, cultivated, and cared for in an endless number of ways through human labor. But even the simplest of these ways is important. Without them all, human life cannot flourish. Even the simplest, most mundane way of taking care of the world around us is, is necessary. You're called to do it, and without it, without you doing that, uh, human life um, cannot flourish. As God's image bearers, then, those who are made in his image, we do our work, 
We create, we bring order, we cultivate, we do it for the sake of love. Right? Um, self-giving, uh, being other-oriented, being joyful, being relational about the work that we're doing. We're doing it not just for ourselves, we're doing it for each other. And we're doing it with each other. Work is something that's to be done together. We are supposed to work together to make this world a better place. It sounds kind of cheesy, but um, work is something that is to be done together, and it's something to be done in relationship with God, right? in imitation of him, and uh, asking for his advice, asking for his help, right? saying, I don't know how to do this. Do you have a suggestion? <laughs> right? It is that level of, of maybe, maybe it seems mundane, but asking God for help in our jobs Praying through our work is something that we were made for, and that's, that's uh, work is uh, rightly done in relationship with God. Now, now, because of the fall, because of our rebellion against God, work, um, when we encounter it, it just doesn't seem like what we've been talking about so far, right? Work is, uh, is cursed. It's actually cursed. God's the one who cursed it as a response to our sin. He says, um, this is what it looks like for people to live outside of relationship with me. This is what it looks like for people to live in rebellion against me. Uh, it's not life. It's not flourishing. It's death and disintegration. Right? And so now work is cursed. And first and foremost, for a lot of us, it's just about survival. Just bare, barely scraping together a living. Work is about survival a lot of the time. And, uh, and later, maybe flourishing if possible. Right? Survival first and foremost. Flourishing if possible. Right? Uh, work is toil. Hard. Um, work is filled with things like preventative maintenance and, uh, and repairing and decontaminating. Right? Even even cleaning things speeds up their disintegration. Right? Even cleaning things causes their wear, causes things to wear out. Right? Um, work is two steps forward and one or maybe two steps back. Right? That's the way we see work now. It, it, we hardly ever experience the joy of consummation in our work. Finally, we've done it, you know. We hardly ever experience that, and never a consummation that lasts, right? Never that kind of eternal uh, consummation that we've been uh, looking for in our work. Mundane repetition seems to us to be terribly vain, terribly tedious, boring, frustrating, that we've got to do the same thing over and over again. Um, And the, the problem, ultimately... The problem ultimately with our work, because uh, the curse came upon it because of our sin, the problem is ultimately our sin. The problem is ultimately that we are sinful in the garden, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. uh, And and please, you know, don't let me be accused of being unrealistic about uh, our view of work that we find from the scriptures. We're talking primarily about the goodness of work because this comes before the fall, this passage that we're looking at. The fall changes everything right? The fall, we abdicated our rightful place in creation. Right? We, we mess things up by our own choice, our rebellion. In the Garden of Eden, the fall 
and now work uh, and, and our relationship with uh, the rest of creation is characterized by things like idolatry and abuse and exploitation, you know, deforestation, strip mining, things like that, neglect, absolute destruction of creation. That's what we do with a lot of our work. That's, that's how our relationship is to the rest of the world because we've abdicated our, our place as God's stewards to, um, to cultivate the creation as we were meant to, to do. So the problem is that we are sinful and the problem is that the result of that, uh, as it says in Romans 8 and so many other places of the scripture, is that creation is just broken. This whole world doesn't work the way that it's supposed to. Creation's groaning, right, waiting for us to be redeemed and for the whole world to be set right again by God's grace because uh, the whole world, the kingly creatures, broke the kingdom. Right? We had this awesome toy to play with and we broke it. Um, the gospel is that the creator himself is recreating. He is recreating and he will recreate. Right? He's, he's restored already our humanity, our nature as the kingly creature. He's restored it already in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who came as just a carpenter, just a guy who offered pretty humble skills, pretty modest skills to society, working with wood, making a table, making a chair, stuff like that, engaging in the world the way we were meant to, right? Um, shaping and cultivating and making beautiful and making useful the world around. Jesus did that. Jesus was a carpenter. He was just a union guy, right? He, uh, he came to do that, and when he came, when he lived for us, he took our humanity and he fixed it. He made it the way that it was supposed to be. He redeemed our humanity, and now... Uh, starting there, starting with his own person, and ending at, the, uh, at his return, the time when he will come back to set all things right, to, to create again the new heavens and the new earth, to take what was here and refashion it into a glorious version, a, a real beautiful version of itself, this, this heavens and this earth. Um, he is restoring all things to their proper function in relationship with humanity. Right? He is recreating. He's doing work. Jesus right now is doing good work, and he will complete that work on the day of Christ. And uh, as we read in the, um, as Dave read in the New Testament reading in Hebrews 2, it says, It has been testified somewhere, what is man? This is from Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet, Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So this is talking about humanity. Like, all of us, the world, it's not really in subjection to us in a lot of ways. Forces beyond our control, chaos, destruction, uh, and, and reigning in all of that is really impossible for us. Right? Fixing the world right now, it's just not in subjection to us. We just can't do it. Right? Try as we might, we cannot fix what we broke. And, um, and we don't see right now everything in subjection to humanity, but we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Again, quoting from Psalm 8. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. He's seated at God's right hand, all authority, 
in heaven and on earth is his. And he rules over all things until all things are brought into subjection to him. Right? So uh, we do see Jesus by faith. We can't see him with our eyes. We see Jesus as the perfect human, the true human, the one uh, with whom his relationship with creation has been restored already and, and is working to restore it for all the rest of us. Jesus is the ultimate steward, the ultimate human steward of God's creation. Humanity is supposed to cause creation. This was the, the original purpose. Humanity was supposed to cause creation to flourish toward harmony, toward shalom, toward this great peace where everything's working beautifully and wonderfully. Humanity is supposed to do that. Humanity is supposed to create this beautiful temple out of what God has made, but we took it the other direction. We took it toward disintegration, tearing it apart until the true human stepped in to bring justice and peace and renewal again. Jesus did that. He took in himself uh, on the cross, he took the full effects of the disintegration that we have initiated. Right? We initiated death and destruction and chaos and disintegration through our rebellion against God, and Jesus stepped in and he took the full effects of that in himself as he died on the cross. Um, and in him now, there's a new creation. It's renewing the world toward its original purpose, toward its original goal. In his res- resurrection, is, uh, we have beauty out of ugliness. We have hope where there was only despair. We have order out of chaos. We have life from death in his resurrection the firstborn of the, the new creation. And in his ascension to heaven, humanity takes the place God always intended for. He's ruling at the right hand of the great artist, the creator. And he has good authority, good dominion over all things, not the kind of authority that we've exercised, uh, the authority of tyrants, those who would destroy this place. Good authority, renewing dominion. And in his return which we await with eagerness, we will see a new heavens and a new earth where we, his people, will join him in his own place, in his own relationship to creation. We will have good authority and good dominion, and we will do good work. The new heavens and the new earth, we will finally be set right to relate to creation as we're supposed to. We will do good work, the kind of work God does, the very work that God does. Imagine an eternity. It is hard for us to imagine an eternity of work, of good work. Right? Uh, even mundane work, even repetitive stuff, without boredom, where, where things have an innate tendency to get better rather than worse, where we can work together without trying to one-up each other, without getting frustrated at your partner, without uh, hating each other, being suspicious of each other, where we can really work together And it will be good. Where God himself guides our hands and prospers everything that we do. And we constantly celebrate the work that we've done together with him. That kind of vision, that kind of hope in a new heavens and a new earth, it renews our attitude toward our work, even now. There's an illustration that um, Tim Keller uses quite a bit where you've got, it illustrates this idea of this, this future hope, this sure, beautiful vision of the future, the hope that we have in the new heavens and the new earth because of Jesus, uh, and how it influences and changes the way we do our work now. Let's say you've got two guys, you sit them down in a room, and you speak to them separately up front and say, look, look, guy number one, 
you're going to do this job right here. You're going to sit at this table, you're going to tinker with the what's it, and you're going you're to sit here and do this every day, well, you know, every work day, uh, eight hours a day for a year, and at the end of the year, you'll get $50,000. And uh, here, guy number two, same conversation. You're going to sit here at this table. You're going to work on the what's it. You're going to be here every day. You're going to work eight hours a day. And at the end of a year, you're going to get $5 million. And which one uh, engages in his work with joy? Which one engages in his work and finds it tedious and wishes he had another job? It, the way that we view... The way that we have a vision of the future, of eternal glory, the way things being the way that they're supposed to be, uh, our relationship to our work, um, it has an influence on the way that we work now. And the applications, again, uh, wrapping up here soon, they're almost limitless. The applications of the gospel and the way that God's original purpose in our creation, that applications for our work are almost limitless. You've got Things like we should develop an environmental conscience, right? Because this, this place, ultimately, we're just stewards of it. It actually belongs to somebody else, and he's got plans for it, and we're supposed to engage in those plans. And it should be a delight, right? It should be a delight to take care of the world around us. Um, retirement. Do you see anything about retirement in here? Do you see anything about retirement? Um, the employer-employee relationship, something brought out in the New Testament, Right? Employers, you're supposed to treat your employees very well. You're supposed to take care of them. Employees, you're supposed to give honor to your employers and not, uh, not groan and, uh, and moan and, and gripe about them. Right? Um, we're supposed to, again, given out in the, New, in the New Testament, we're supposed to work in order to share. Right? Another application is to, to work so that we have something to give to the people who have none. Maybe that's largely a feature of the fall where people just have none, try as they might, they just can't get anything together, and we who have something, we can, we can contribute. We can help take care of them. We can't fix the world, but we can help, right? We can give. We can share. Um, it's a great application of uh, a way that we should engage in our work, in our vocation for the, the betterment of the world. Students, enjoy your studies. Little kids... You're doing your work. You're called to be in your school. You're called to learn. You're called to explore. A lot of you, I know already, you, you love what you're doing, right? You discover new things all the time, and, uh, and you're supposed to enjoy your studies, right? This, this becomes harder for us the more rebellious we get. I remember sitting in, um, sometime in middle school, sitting in geometry or algebra or whatever it is, you're sitting in middle school, uh, you have to endure, and you, you hear the constant complaint, what practical good is this going to do me, right? What good is algebra going to do me? Um, when am I ever going to use this in real life, right? That's, that's not the only reason we study. That's not the only reason we learn, just to utilitarian kind of use stuff and, and, and be able to make life better. Sometimes we just study for its own sake because it's exciting, because it's joyful to learn, right, to discover what God has made. So... Mathematics, great example, you know. We do it for its own sake. We just find pure joy in it. Go home and read some book on mathematics and be excited about it, right? Um, this is what humans were made for. So enjoy your studies. Right? Um, 
Maintain a childlike wonder in your engagement with the world God has made, in your exploration of it, your learning of it, right? Maintain a childlike wonder. Because it's amazing when, um, when you ask children, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they can't even think of an answer. And that answer changes every five minutes. I want to be this, I want to be that, because there's so many amazing things to do and learn and explore, right? Maintain that childlike wonder. Uh, losing your wonder is just about the most terrifying prospect imaginable. Losing your wonder, that, that way of engaging in this, this artistic, creative work that God has done and he's called you to engage in, if you, uh, if you don't have any wonder about that, um, if it ceases to be glorious to you and exciting to you, how dreadful it would be for you to imagine an eternity doing that. But it, an eternity doing this, it will be filled with wonder and every day will be better than the last. Do your work well. You know, do it. Do your work hard. Do hard work, right? Do it well. And then, you know, rest. We talked about this last week uh, with the concept of the Sabbath. Don't find your identity in your work. Um, you need to take a break from it. You need to be okay with taking a break from it, right? Um, but do your work well, as well as you can, and then rest. Have that cycle in your life. Have, have patience through your work. Maybe it's kind of a miserable job and you, you're having a hard time thinking of any redeeming qualities about it, have patience. Have patience. But stay-at-home moms, right? Have patience. Um, trust in a sure hope that you have through faith in Jesus Christ to carry you through the hardship of your daily life. Right? I close up with Tim Keller says, um, look in what you're gifted to do Look out what needs to be done and look up what God wants you to do. Look in what you're gifted to do, look out what needs to be done, and look up what God wants you to do. That's how you can engage in in your calling, in your work, uh, in light of the gospel. Amen. Let's pray. Father, there's so many things for us to think about, uh, so many good things that you've called us to do, good ways that you've called us to engage in the world around us, and so many good ways that, in fact, in eternity, we will not exhaust them all. And we pray that you would open our eyes to see those things, to see the glories and the wonders of this world that you have made, to engage in our world um, and in our work in a different way. Um, Give us a, a Christian worldview, a Christian perspective, a Christian vision on what you've made and how we're to engage in it so that we can um, go and and be a light in our workplaces and in our daily lives, in our uh, daily callings and vocations, so that in all things uh, as we uh, serve you and as we serve you with joy and gladness and and creativity and diligence in our callings, that we would call attention to a greater hope that we have in the future, the renewal of all things, the recreation, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth that come about only by your grace. We pray that you would help us in our daily lives to reflect uh, your coming kingdom and testify to your grace in a way that uh, brings glory to your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.